Good morning, and welcome to HR Examiner's Executive Conversations. I'm your host, John Sumster, and today we're going to be talking with Don Weinstein, who leads ADP's global product and technology team. Don's been a guest many times over the years, and it's great to have you back. How are you, Don? I'm doing great, John. It's great to be back. How are you? I, I, well, you know, outside of the fact that I've been in prison for a hundred days, I'm doing great. <laughs> you know, this is, I have a, I have a good roommate in solitary confinement, but, but man, um, I was not prepared for this. Um, how about you? Yeah, no, likewise. I, I think, uh, in this, you and I both are in the same boat. I now have more roommates than when I started the year with, uh, with some of my, uh, college kids moving moving back in with us and uh look we're all you know we're all adjusting and and we're all adapting to, to the new realities and uh uh you know even the bandwidth constraints you, you never find out how strong your your wi-fi signal is until you got five teenagers uh or three teenagers and five people on it but uh look everybody's everybody's healthy um thank uh, thankfully and um We'll we'll see. Hopefully, you know, here I'm in New Jersey. Uh, you know, the trend lines have been positive, and we're we're back uh, onto phase two of our reopening, and and hopefully getting to phase three, and just watching out to make sure we don't have that dreaded second wave. Yeah, well, out, out here in California, we're seeing the second wave. Listen, would you take a moment before we get too far down the conversation? Would you would you introduce yourself so? The, the few people in the audience who haven't run across you before will know who you are. Um, sure, I'd be glad to. Uh, so Don Weinstein, I'm Corporate Vice President of Global Product and Technology for ADP, and, and what that means is I basically uh, am responsible for anything and everything technology and, and product-related. And it's a little bit – it's actually a somewhat unusual role in that it combines all of our uh, external facing, you know, client facing product work with also all of our internal uh, technology functions. So think about it as the traditional CIO role and CTO role uh, all wrapped up into one. So uh, it's, uh, if anything goes wrong, it's all my fault is how I like to say it. Uh, but but your your influence in ADP is is vaster than that. I, I, when I think about ADP, I, I think there's the there's, there's Carlos, who's the jovial CEO, and then and when he has any questions about anything, he turns to you to get the answer. Um, so, 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 well, so, so, it, so it's bigger than you describe, I think. Kind, but uh, I'm sure Carlos would appreciate being described as uh, as, as jovial. Uh, but uh, uh, he's a super, he's an amazing CEO, and uh, I think uh, the thing about Carlos that everybody says the most is uh, a very high integrity person in his case, uh, which is critical if you think about what we do uh, in terms of handling so much of uh, of the nation's and the economy's payroll. You want a really, really high-integrity uh, person uh, running uh, running the show. But I'm glad his external persona is jovial. I'll let him know that. Yeah, I'm sure he'll, uh, he'll appreciate well, that. He's just easy to like. He's just really easy to like. And, and the... Um, he creates a sense of trust in every interaction that I've ever seen him in, and that's 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 a standout characteristic. You're lucky you're lucky to have him in yeah. your life. I agree. That's the so, truth, and that's that that's that integrity dimension in particular, right? Because you you know we talk about like the speed of trust and all that, and uh, 
you know, you, you, you know it when you have somebody that you work for that you trust. Uh, it does create that safety environment to be able to do your best. Yeah, and just to keep dwelling on this a little bit, my sense is that the way he builds trust is by giving it. Right, that's the mm -hmm. that's the trick. That's the trick that I think most people don't understand is you, you trust engenders trust, and so if you if you lead with trust, you get trust back. That was really well said. You know, I never I hadn't heard it put that way before, but uh, as you describe it now, that's exactly the the way it's experienced on the on the team. Uh, so that's that's gonna have to quote you on that. Oh, oh, well, you know, add that to your long book of John Sumpter quotes. It's probably hundreds of pages long by now. <laughs> so, so you're 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 an engineer by you're an engineer by trade. There are not great quantities of engineers who have uh, highly visible positions in HR and HR tech. Um, well, how do you see the relationship between those two disciplines? Yeah, no, it's a it's a great question. I think engineering engineers at their core are, you know, problem solvers. You know, very very pragmatic people. You see a, a problem, uh, you see a process, or there's no process or problem that that can't be fixed or or improved. Um, you know, in my world, we we talk about uh, how do we eliminate friction or pain in every single process or interaction between uh, a worker uh, and the client. Um, and, and really just try and take an expansive view at that to say not only looking at the pain that, that people complain about, but also sometimes there's pain that people don't complain about because, well, they've just learned to accept it or, or to live with it as a way of life. But, you know, engineers, we're, we're trained not to accept anything for what it is, but to always assume that there's a better way and, and constantly be on the search for that, that better way of doing things. Um, but at the same time, you know, I think the, the, the discipline of, of HR and human capital management reminds us that, well, there's a human side to this and that, the, you know, the people who are engaging this, they're not just bits and bytes. They're actual people uh, on the other sides of, of the products and, and the technology. And, you know, we really have to humanize our approach to optimization problems and also recognize that, people don't always respond in the ways that you might expect on your spreadsheet or your prototyping process. And so, you know, I think to that end, we've done a couple of interesting things at, at ADP in terms of roles that we've added to the team. So we have, uh, we have both behavioral psychologists. I have a couple of PhD uh, behavioral psychologists on the team, you know, who help us try and understand and even communicate with emotion. Uh, to the clients and the uh, and and the workers ultimately who are on the uh, the receiving end of everything we do, um, and we have a corporate anthropologist, you know, who likewise is trained more in the art of observation, um, not you know, almost to recede into the background and see things for how they are, and then the engineering side can come back and say, here's how they could be, but recognizing that uh, we are dealing with people here and people can be you know, emotional uh, beings, and you have to handle the psychological aspects, not just the operational side. So um, I've spent some time with Martha Bird. She's, she's pretty amazing. She's your corporate anthropologist. And That's right. This leads me in a, in a weird way to the next question, which is there's, there's, there's a lot of unrest in the country right now, and 
diversity and inclusion have become um, important things for corporate executives to talk about. But 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 in general, talking doesn't get you much, and the and the the unrest is about the fact that people have been talking about stuff for years. ADP, as the biggest um, player in the HR tech space by a lot, um, is actually leading here. So would you would you talk a little bit about about how you guys are thinking about and what you're doing in diversity and inclusion? Yeah, no, it's it's a great point, John, and um, I think you're you're right fundamentally that uh, you know it's been a lot of talk for a long time, but maybe you know not as much action, and that's one of the factors. Obviously, a lot of factors, but one of the factors contributing to the uh, you know the general sense of frustration. Um, this has always been important to us. This is not like something something new, uh, both internally within ADP. I think if you look at at any of the kind of uh, external reference bodies like the Diversity Inc. or the Human Rights uh, Council that, generally speaking, ADP scores pretty highly on those types of things um, because we do care. But I think to your point about being the largest provider in the human capital technology space, you know, we not only have to lead by example, but we have to also help others. So uh, along those lines, a few things that we've we've done and are continuing to do is um, you know, we launched uh, our Pay Equity Explorer uh, as part of our, our data cloud, which was uh, analytics and insights to help uh, clients, companies identify uh, where they might have discrepancies, pay discrepancies by, uh, by race, by gender, or by ethnicity um, anywhere in their, in their organization um, and do it in a way that's uh, action-oriented. So it's not just to say, look, you've got these pay discrepancies, but you know, here are the individuals, here's where they work, here's what the market benchmark says it should be, you know, click here to take action on it, to try and make it much, much more action-oriented around it, not just analysis, but, but uh, rectifying some of those, um, some of those disparities. Uh, similar on the, on the recruiting side, um, you know, we've, we've gone out with our candidate relevancy algorithms, which are really, we've been out there for a few years now, um, have attempted to strip biases out of the talent acquisition process by removing things like, uh, you know, any kind of, of, of race or gender or other ethnic identifiers uh, from a candidate's background and really zero in and, and focus on, uh, on just pure skills. And I think we've seen, you know, good examples of that. I'm a, I'm a big fan of, uh, of Malcolm Gladwell. And, you know, so I read in, in the book Outliers about the uh, experience they had with um, one of the orchestras, I forget which one it was, where they had a very low penetration uh, of, uh, you know, very, very small number of um, females in the orchestra relative to total population of musicians. And when they went to blind auditions, you know, it, it instantly jumped up and it normalized to about 50-50, which is where you would expect it to be versus, I, I don't remember the number, but it was far below 50% of their orchestra was female. And so it just, you know, kind of bore out this point that if you could strip out that there was some unconscious bias uh, in the selection process and to the extent that you could strip that out, things could follow a more natural sequence. And so we've, we've had some of these things uh, in the market for a while now with some success, I would say, my, my hope is that I think we'll get more traction with them um, going forward. By the way, just one, one thing to, uh, to point out, 
when we've introduced these types of capabilities, we haven't, we haven't charged for them. We haven't tried to monetize them. It's like if you're a client of ADP, you know, if you're using our recruiting solution, we're, we're going to give you that candidate relevancy uh, algorithm uh, for free, essentially, because we think it's important for you to have it and use it. We're not trying to, to, to make a, a buck off of um, helping fix what I think is an important problem. Um, and then, you know, in addition to that, I think one of the things we've really been, been looking at going forward is we started a, an AI ethics board because this topic about, you know, algorithms in the workplace and machine learning, you know, if you do have biases that are already present in the workplace, you know, if you put algorithms around that, are they going to correct for the biases or if implemented poorly, there's always the risk that they could just, you know, reinforce them and you could be more efficient at uh, implementing your biases. So we started an AI ethics board um, and it was important that we had a mix of not only internal but also external uh, participants, you know, from outside the company. So uh, from inside, we have our chief privacy officer, uh, we have our, our head of corporate diversity, um, as well as our chief uh, audit officer. But then we also got some external counsel from, uh, from the world of um, uh, HR practices uh, and employment practices uh, uh, legal counsel uh, to be part of our AI ethics board. That's interesting. Sometime, sometime other than today, we should have a long conversation about that. There are, there are things that I've been learning about ethics boards that suggest that you have to have a fairly rapid turnover of the people on the ethics board, or, or, or they will tend to become a rubber stamp. But, but that's not on the list for today. Uh, thanks, thanks, for, thanks for talking about it a little bit. I, I've been curious about what you're doing there. Um, you run this big global development team. I mean, you're, you're one of one of the hard parts of your job is that you've got a huge. ADP software development project with major development centers all over the world, um, and that I was I was always blown away by how complicated that is and how gracefully executed it was. And and my question is both tell me a little bit more about that, and then having that broadly distributed workforce. Um, did that prepare you for the, the the crisis that you hit when you had to move everybody in the company from their offices into work from home settings? Yeah, let me let me tackle the the second part first. And I think in in a sense it did a little bit in that you know due to our breadth, um, you know we've dealt with a multitude of regional issues in the past, mostly natural disasters like you know hurricanes in Texas and Florida or flooding in Chennai or the yellow vest strikes in, uh, in, in Paris where uh, the transportation system was shut down, you know, all of which caused us to close offices temporarily. And in so doing, you know, put our business continuity plans into practice. You know, every organization has a business continuity plan, but you never know how good it is until you actually have to, to put it in and, and see how it works. But, I think what was unique about this time was that this was our first global. Everything else was regional. It's like, okay, well, we'll send the folks from this office into a remote setting, and then we'll distribute the workload around. But this was truly global, um, which put a tremendous amount of load um, on our internal network. And in particular, you know, our VPN capacity was never sized to have 60,000 uh, associates uh, logged in at the same time. Um, and whereas, 
economies like like North America and to an extent in, in Europe had a little bit more of a history and a practice of working from home. In other areas of the world, such as in, in India, it was never really a work from home environment. People didn't even have laptops. We actually, and, and trying to procure laptops in, in those locations right now, almost impossible. We, in fact, went out and like we bought uh, uh, wireless cards and had associates plug the wireless cards into their desktops, bring their desktops home um, because they might not have even had good, uh, good infrastructure at home. We created our own internal geek squad that would go out to the associates' houses uh, and check in on their setups and make sure that they could uh, they could operate. So it was quite quite a logistical undertaking, uh, but you know we managed to uh, to get that all done and uh, not really not really miss a beat. Um, I think you know it's 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 always for us it's been an advantage having that global footprint in part because. You know, we, we provide services to clients in almost 140 different countries, both through ourselves and through our partner network. And so being able to have engineers in the markets, software developers in the markets where we're do, doing business, just important to stay close to our clients, our global clients, um, and uh, make sure that we're also close to the local regulatory environment. Again, part of this uh, change that's happened in, in light of uh, in light of the pandemic is governments around the world are all passing legislation to try and, and sustain their economies. Here in the U.S., obviously, we've talked a lot about the CARES Act and the Paycheck Protection Program, which we've been on the front lines. Um, and I do use a, a military battle analogy of front lines to describe the response to the, the PPP program, which keeps changing. But uh, globally, mm. Uh, we've had we've had almost 2,000 legislative changes that we've had to implement in uh, you know multitude of countries around the world. Man, what 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 a time this has been for you. So so you've moved all these people from their offices to remote work settings, and now every one of those 60,000 people is competing with three teenagers in the house for bandwidth. <laughs> What are you learn? What are you learning as 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 um, you uh, start to sort of get your balance um, um, in this new work environment? Yeah. Well, look, work, working from home has been a hot topic, and it's been at the forefront ever since I think it was Marissa Meyer at Yahoo uh, called all the Yahoo engineers back in from from working from home, and there was this hot debate out there. Um, Lots of folks feel that they're being uh, even more productive now that they're working from home. Um, I do see a greater blurring of work. You know, for instance, as I mentioned, now that we have our, our uh, global workforce on the VPN and we were monitoring VPN activity just to make sure we had capacity, you could actually see the patterns of work um, around, the, around the world. But the biggest thing I saw was, was how many hours people were logging um, and it seemed like that was was up, uh, and that folks are always connected, and not just connected, but uh, uh, but being active. Um, but you know, on the productivity side, and I think this debate is not is not going to quiet down. It's only going to ramp back up again. On is working from home more productive or less productive? You know, my personal experience is when we have a hundred percent of everybody working remote, I think I think we've had some pretty good productivity. Um, as we start to look now at organizations doing a partial return to office, 
I think that's going to be hard if you've got, you know, call it 50% of the folks in the office, 50% remote to sustain that, that same level of, of productivity in that type of environment. You know, there's more, there's more sensitivity to making sure everybody who's remote is heard when 100% of the group is remote. Um, but I've experienced it myself firsthand if we have a meeting and, you know, a majority of people are in the office and a minority are, are you know, on the, um, you know, on the video call, um, making sure that we're balanced and everybody has a chance to be heard and participate equally can be a challenge. And so I do wonder, you know, how that's going to evolve as people start to slowly open back up and return to their offices. Cool. So, so you've got, Eight hundred and ten thousand customers. So that that that's such an extraordinary number. I, I'm not sure what to make of it sometimes. But 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 you're watching what's happening at those eight hundred and ten thousand customers. What are you seeing? How how's the world really reacting to this? Yeah, it's a great question, and we we're able to watch that very closely. And uh, you know, I think we we talked about it even a little bit in, in the national um, in the national employment report that we put out, and, and Carlos did mention some of this at the analyst day. But it seemed like like uh, here in the U.S., the economy hit rock bottom, kind of around the end of April or the beginning of May. Um, certainly, our our May employment report was was pretty rough, um, and then the one that just came out in in early June, which ran through the middle of May, uh, it was still down. Um, but it was down much, much less than, than the April report. Or if I could throw an engineering term at you, the second-order derivative uh, turned positive, which is the, the change uh, in, in the rate of decline. So it declined much, much, much less. And so we're starting to see green shoots uh, across the board in terms of, you know, we look at how many hours are being clocked or logged by the workforce, what's the, the dollar wage that's getting paid, um, so we definitely feel like we bottomed out and things are, are ticking up. Um, not a true V-shaped recovery, so to speak. You know, we still haven't, still haven't gotten back to where we were uh, prior to the, the start of the pandemic, uh, but definitely trending in a positive direction. I think now what we're all on the lookout for is that dreaded second wave. You know, things continue on the current course and trajectory. Um, you know, you could see us. Uh, you could see us in the second half of the calendar year almost getting back to, to where we were before, but nobody knows what's going to happen uh, with the virus and, and what's going to happen uh, with, the, uh, you know, with the related economic expan uh, uh, expansion. But right now, at least, it feels like we're on a positive trajectory, albeit off of a very low bottom. So, so to jump, you you are now one of the largest providers of machine learning in the in the industry, um, um, and the heart of machine learning is history. Um, yeah. and, and I wonder, I wonder how your your views of machine learning have changed over the last ninety days because we've we've entered this play, place where. History may not be as relevant as it was 90 days ago. Yeah, look, that's that's a that's a great question. I think we, you know, I'll, I'll go back to kind of the the national employment report uh, example for a second, and uh, you know, we we track it relative to the the BLS, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, and in a normal month, 
you know, we might be looking at deviations between our employment report and the BLS report that might be on the order of tens of, tens of thousands of jobs. Um, and, you know, in our May report, we were down two and a half million. Everybody thought that was crazy until the BLS came out and said, well, no, the economy added two and a half million jobs, which is really crazy. <laughs> but, <laughs> but the deviation between the two numbers, as I said, we, we'd go into panic attacks if, if the deviation, you know, was in the tens of thousands. That was a deviation of five million. And nobody even batted an eye because uh, everything was – was just so volatile at the time. I think it's important to recognize, to your point then, which of those, so you're right, the machine learning, it's, it's, it's learning on the data, it's learning on history. And I think the key thing is to understand what, what data sets are materially impacted or impaired because of the volatility of the environment, and, and which ones aren't. Right, because not everyone, uh, not everyone is. As I mentioned, you know, we were looking at um, at our skills taxonomy and running a, a machine learning algorithm against that to try and help identify the best candidates, regardless of race, gender, and ethnicity. Um, that doesn't change. You know, I don't, I don't know that 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 has changed uh, necessarily uh, in this environment. Um, at the same time. You know, you just have to be mindful of those because, for instance, you may have had a preference for candidates who were closer to your office. And um, now that, you know, maybe there's more flexibility to working from home, you don't want to start screening out those remote uh, candidates as much. So I think the most important thing, to your point, what have we learned about, about machine learning, is you just can't put it on autopilot uh, and let it run. Um, and, and the algorithms will tune themselves but I think they benefit and are enhanced if you actually understand what's inside them, what are the factors that they're keying off of, what are the weightings, and just, you know, retest those assumptions and say, does that, does that still make sense or has that been materially impacted uh, based on what's happening? There'll be some cases where, where that hasn't, uh, hasn't changed. Um, there may be others um, that have. You know, compensation factors may be interesting to look at because, you know, we've been we've been chugging along on our market-based pay ratings, as I talked about before. Um, and and the good news is we have you know we have a lot of data. Uh, in general, I find when you have a volatile in, uh, environment, having too much history uh, in the uh, in the algorithm can be problematic because you might overweight the the history accidentally. Um, so I think the other thing we've looked at is you know do we tighten down those time periods now? and try and understand a little bit better, is there a material turn going? But I think the question, the big picture question that, that you raised there is, you know, what have we, you know, what have we changed in our view about machine learning or I would say evolved? It's really just understanding that this isn't something that can run on autopilot, that, that us as the provider uh, of the algorithms in some cases, and for sure, you know, a, a, a client company or organization as the consumer um, really want to know what's in there and can't assume that it's operating as usual, but at least make that proactive check and say, hmm, is this, is this going to give me a, a credible result or should I be mindful of, of the underlying factors? Because I don't want to say, well, just throw them all out now because the history's changed because some of them are still going to be very, very useful but you have to make that kind of conscious, deliberate assessment 
and not just allow things to operate um, as is, if that makes sense. So, so if you, that, that, that makes perfect sense. If you've got a couple of extra minutes, I wanted to ask you about innovation. Right? You, you, uh, you have a remarkable innovation program at, at ADP and um, have been leading with it for years. Um, and now we've got, we've got sort of everybody to the mattresses. Um, how's innovation going in this environment, and, and how are your innovation centers doing? Yeah, so the innovation centers are, are cranking along. As I shared before, I think, you know, folks believe that, that their productivity uh, is up. Getting really good metrics about knowledge worker productivity is a, is a hard challenge for us, but you know, from a, a, we look at the throughput of the delivery and, and they're cranking along. You know, one of the things we do as well is um, we've been doing some engagement pulses as, as the workforce has transitioned to uh, working from home. You know, we, we acquired uh, Marcus Buckingham's company a few years back, and we've adopted uh, his engagement, uh, engagement pulse and the engagement framework. And it's quite remarkable um, that, uh, and one of the beauties of it is that it's, it's kind of manager empowering so I can run an engagement pulse for my organization whenever I want to. So we actually ran one right in the middle of the, the downturn, and we had had a baseline just beforehand. And we actually saw engagement went up five points, which was remarkable. And you could see that adrenaline rush. So, you know, I believe that we're, we're continuing to execute. Um, and, in fact, in some cases, there's a little bit of an adrenaline rush happening where folks are, are working even uh, even harder because there's this blending now of, you know, the work life, the work home separation, which never was really there to begin with, uh, is even uh, even tougher right now. Um, but we're experimenting with some new tools to help us do kind of virtual event storming and brainstorming uh, on, you know, with virtual yellow stickers and user journeys. Um, but I think as we removed as we moved on site, uh, we moved off site. I think that innovation culture has stayed intact and just transferred to digital. But one of the reasons I think that was the case is that we already had established those, uh, those centers and the programs and the teams, and they were already mature. Um, I would not be as confident about starting something brand new, like, hey, would I start up a brand new innovation center or team right now, especially because we had hired a lot from the outside, um, I wouldn't be as confident in that at the moment. I think we'd have to think through that one a little bit harder. But taking the existing kind of, you know, more mature team that had been working together and had already kind of moved into that performing phase and them going uh, virtually, uh, I think that's been a, a smoother transition than, than we feared, mostly, uh, to say. That's fantastic. So, so we've run through our half hour. It's been a great conversation. Anything you want to add before we go? Um, you know, I think it's been, as you said, the, the, the pandemic has been uh, all-encompassing. You know, we've had, to, we've had to focus on business continuity. Uh, we've had to focus on compliance. And now we're, we're turning our attention to, okay, some clients are looking to return to office. Others are trying to figure out how they navigate their new digital future. And we just kind of keep progressing this thing. Uh, in waves, you know, sort of on wave three of our pandemic response, and nobody knows what wave four is going to look like, um, but we're committed to staying out in front of it. And as you said before, it's uh, 
you know, it's it's been a challenging time. It's It's been a crazy time, but uh, it's also been one where I think, at least within my organization, you know, I look at the engagement scores, I look at the productivities. It feels like in many spaces, people are like rising, rising to the challenge and rising to the occasion. And that's, that's really, you know, that's really uh, gratifying to see. So I hope, hopefully you guys are staying safe and sane over there uh, and we'll try to do likewise. We, we are. So would you take a moment and reintroduce yourself, tell people how they might get a hold of you? Yeah, uh, Don Weinstein, Corporate Vice President of uh, Global Product and Technology for ADP. Uh, easiest way to find me is to look me up either on LinkedIn uh, or message me on Twitter, Don Weinstein1. Thanks, Don. It's been great having you. You've been listening to HR Examiner's Executive Conversations, and we've been talking with Don Weinstein, who is ADP's lead for global product and technology. Thanks for tuning in today, and thanks again, Don. Uh, We will talk to you back here next week. Bye-bye now.